Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the Hemingway List Podcast, Book 7, Chapter 7. Um, and then we'll be reading Chapter 8, which is the last chapter in Book 7. Very cool. Tom is not happy that the inheritance is going to an in-law. Tekrific says, we're back in the landscape room in the old house where so much of this book has taken place. We enter in the middle of a row between Thomas and Madame Buddenbrook. History seems to repeat itself. Doesn't this remind everybody of the row between Johann Sr. and Johann Jr. about Jr.'s half-brother, Gotthold? Yeah, actually, now that you say that, very much. Thomas is trying to keep it all up, but it's slipping away, and he blames everybody. He's been spending two, and he knows it. They're all the makers of their own downfall. Yeah, Thomas has a tendency to... um, shift the blame around, doesn't he? Like, he's just bought this expensive house, and now this inheritance, which was promised by Madame Buddenbrook, he's sort of, you know, saying that that's the downfall. You know, that's that's what's making them broke. <clears throat> Yet again, not taking responsibility for his part in ruining the family financially. I've got to say, it's been a much slower decline, this decline of a family, than I was expecting. They're still very much, you know, okay. Um, I thought by now they'd be completely like, you know, up, up shit creek, but <laughs> not so much. Swim says Mama Fishy says, Thomas is throwing himself a good old-fashioned temper tantrum. He grew up with plenty of money and with status conferred upon him based on actions by senior and junior, and to which he seems to feel entitled to simply by fortune of birth. From the book, nothing was going right, nothing was turning out the way he wanted. Had things gone so far now that when it came to the most crucial matters, people simply went right over his head, here in the house of his forefathers, it only became the house of his forefathers in 1835. Well, <laughs> True. Events had taken their course without him, but it seemed to him that this sort of thing could not have happened in the past, and it would not have dared happen in the past. Durst Jenks says, yeah, his frustration about being passed over in the decision-making process is very clear. Ah, uh, yeah, but I mean, what would his part have been in the decision-making? Maybe Madame Burenbrook is smart enough to know that he would have just... Uh, opposed it and then she would have had to go on against him which would have probably made a rift whereas in this case he's upset with her but at least she didn't go against his wish because she never conferred with him maybe do we owe her that much credit is she that savvy we don't really know much about madame buttonbrook i mean we do but not enough to say whether she did that on purpose or not chapter eight very short chapter. Wars and rumour. I'll start again because I've already messed it up. Wars and rumours of war. Billeting and bustle. Prussian officers tread the parquetry floors of Senator Buddenbrook's balassage, kiss the hand of the lady of the house, and frequent the club of Christian, with Christian, who is back from Oinhausen. In Meng Street, Mamsel Severin. Rik Chin Severin, the Frau Consul's new companion, helps the maids to drag piles of mattresses into the old garden house, which is full of soldiers. Confusion, disorder, 
and suspense reign. The troops march off through the gate. New ones come in. They overrun the town. They eat, sleep, fill the ears of the citizens with the noise of rolling drums, commands, and trumpet calls, and march off again. Royal princes are feated. Entry follows entry. Then quiet again and suspense. In the late autumn and winter, the victorious troops return again. They are billeted in the town for a time, are mustered out and go home. To the great relief of the cheering citizens, peace comes, the brief peace heavy with destiny of the year 1865. And between two wars, little Johann played unconscious and tranquil. With the soft curling hair and voluminous pinafore frocks, he played in the garden by the fountain or in the little gallery partitioned off for his use by the pillared railing from the vestibule of the second story, played the plays of his four and a half years, those plays whose meaning and charm no grown person can possibly grasp, which need no more than a few pebbles or a stick of wood with a dandelion for a helmet since they command the pure, powerful, glowing, untaught and unintimidated fancy of those blissful years before life touches us when neither duty nor remorse dares to lay upon us a finger weight when we may see, hear, laugh, dream and feel amazement when the world yet makes upon us not one single demand yet the impatience of those whom we should like so much to love does not yet torment us for evidence of our ability to succeed in the impending struggle ah, only a little while and that struggle will be upon us, and they will do their best to bend us to their will and cut us to their pattern, to exercise us, to lengthen us, to shorten us, to corrupt us. Great things happened while little Hanno played. The war flamed up, and its fortune swayed this way and that, then inclined to the side of the victors, and Hanno, Buddenbrook's native city, which had shrewdly stuck to Prussia, looked on not without satisfaction at wealthy Frankfurt, which had to pay with her independence for her, li for her faith in Austria, but with the failure in July of a large firm of Frankfurt wholesale dealers immediately before the armistice, the firm of Johann Buddenbrook lost at one fell swoop the round sum of 20,000 Thaler. All right, there we go. Weird chapter. Weird chapter. All right. Looking forward to seeing what you've got to say about it, uh, and I'll see you tomorrow.